She is a wife, mom of a 17-year-old, physician leader and educator who has a keen awareness of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Throughout her medical practice, she has found many of her patients hold their life stress in their trapezius, jaws, stomach, and head. She doesn't ignore these areas of restriction, but also understands the person has spirit and mental health is an essential component of well-being. She strives to create an environment for patients in her office to open up about their lives and heal from their pain. Through her eyes, OMM is much more than a medical treatment. It makes more empathetic physicians who create a level of comfort and confidence with their patients. Enjoy this conversation with a special physician leader, educator, and president of the AAO, Dr. Millicent Chanel. Welcome to episode 85 of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Podcast, where we share clinical stories and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Green, a second year osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine resident at Michigan State University. Our guest is a graduate of Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine and is board certified in family medicine and ONMM. She has served in numerous academic roles, including residency director and department chair for OMM, and co-authored the book, The Five-Minute Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Consult. She is a graduate of the Executive Leadership and Academic Medicine program at Drexel University College of Medicine and the Coston Institute at Midwestern University. She is actively involved in the osteopathic profession, previously serving on the ACGME's Osteopathic Principles Committee and as a member of the Board of Directors for the NBOME. Currently, she is the Associate Dean for the Curriculum and Professor of OMM and Family Medicine at Rowan Virtua School of Osteopathic Medicine. We welcome the 2023-24 President of the American Academy of Osteopathy, Dr. Millicent King Chanel. So thank you so much, Dr. Chanel, for being with us tonight and being willing to share your story. Thank you so much, Dr. Green. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So I, I like to start the, the podcast out getting to know you a little bit as a person, maybe outside of medicine. So if you had to describe yourself in a sentence or two, how, how would you do that? Yeah, I find that really hard. Uh... Uh, to do, because uh, the first thing I think of is my love of stand-up comedy, uh, and then I go, but I also love HGTV, and I'm a mom of a 17-year-old and a wife of a, a retiree and all these other great things, so it's just a potpourri of random, wonderful things. Yeah, it, it's kind of an unfair question. <laughs> <laughs> What what are what are some of your hobbies though outside of your busy medical practice? Um, I love to read. I love to go hiking. Um, Pre COVID, I love to travel. Uh, Post COVID, we are uh, actually just starting to get back into that. We're actually leaving for South Africa uh, this coming weekend, so I'm very excited about uh, that. And uh, I love all things HGTV and home renovation and. I never get tired of uh, House Hunters or any of those uh, programs. 
Yeah, you do. You have a, a broad spectrum of hobbies and interests. <laughs> and South Africa, that's a that's family vacation or is that? Uh, yeah, that's a family vacation. It's a bucket list. I turned 50 uh, this week. And so that's what we're doing. Fun. That's really exciting. That's That's on my bucket list as well. Yeah, yeah. I've never heard anyone who went to South Africa who didn't love it. Um, so that's that's definitely on the top list of things to do. So I guess the real question is, are you going to go swimming with the great white sharks? Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't even like to go in the water <laughs> when I can see the other side. I really feel like there's an unspoken treaty about the ocean. Uh, they don't come on land uh, and we're not supposed to go too far into the sea. So absolutely not. <laughs> uh, there are just certain ways I can't die. I can't face my maker and say that I purposely got into shark infested waters. That's just not something <laughs> I personally can do, but you know, to each his own. That's right. I've, I've actually had two friends who have gone to South Africa and actually have done that. No. So, uh, that's why I asked. That's right up there with jumping out of airplanes. And no, there's just certain ways I can't die. So. <laughs> so what what about a book recommendation? You said you're an avid reader. What uh, recommendations do you have for the audience? Oh, just really too many things. I actually have a whole book list I give to medical students that no one reads until they get to residency or they're in attending and then I get these phone calls. Um, <laughs> I promise you the number one book that I tell um, all of my student leaders and young faculty to read uh, is The Four Agreements. Uh, I think it's a, a great book for personal development and just for life. It's a really fast read. You could probably read it in four to five hours. It's an even quicker audiobook. It's like two and a half hours on audiobook. Um, and I just think it really just helps clear the path, clear a lot of the garbage out of life. So highly recommend Four Agreements. Four Agreements. Okay. Mm -hmm. Put that one on the list to read. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about a movie or documentary recommendation? Again, I'm a big movie buff. Uh, <laughs> I, have a, I have a bunch of movies. I just, I've been making my son watch a bunch of movies with me. He's 17. So I, I make him trek through everything from when Harry met Sally. Uh, what did we just watch? Uh, to Dolores Claiborne and all these other movies that came out in the 80s and, uh, <laughs> and, and 90s. Um, obviously Shawshank Redemption, but uh, one of the ones that documentaries we actually have in our curriculum is called Born to Be on uh, transgender care. And uh, it's a really good documentary. It talks about the first fellowship in transgender care, uh, transitional surgeries, and uh, also follows some patients through it. So that's a great documentary. But yeah, I have so many movies, countless movies that I love. Uh, Michael Clayton, just I'm all into the suspense uh, or into the uh, really silly. So, and stand up comedy. And all things stand up comedy. <laughs> all things. I'm a, I'm a connoisseur of stand up comedy. I love it all day long. Uh, big Bill Burr fan. And oh, yeah. uh, uh, absolutely. I, I just Bill can't Burr. love Bill Burr. Uh, like, we even go to see him <laughs> as a family. Like, that's our family outing. Uh, so, love <laughs> Bill Burr. Love Cat Williams. I love the irreverent. And, um, you know, love uh, Kathleen Madigan. All of those people; those are all my all my favorites. Yeah, so. and it sounds like movie time, comedy time is also family bonding time, at least with your son. Absolutely, absolutely, with my son and my husband. Absolutely. Listen, you got to laugh to keep from crying, right? So you got to keep a sense of humor about life. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's ups and downs in life, and a lot of challenges. So uh, 
yeah, comedy definitely helps to break break up the the uh, difficult times, maybe. When life. I have students coming into my office and they all come in smiling and you close the door and then it's sort of like Barbara Walters, like crying or whatever's going on. And at the end of it, I always go, I need you to go home. I need you to find something really, either something really funny to watch or something so that you can really let all the tears out, go one extreme or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can't keep all this stuff bottled up. Yeah. And stand up comedy. I'm always loving, giving them recommendations of things to watch uh, so that they can laugh and, and take a step back yeah. uh, from what seems so serious in that moment. Yeah. Laughter. Gosh, what? Uh, that's like, that's good medicine, right? Laughing. Oh, yeah. I joke with my patients all the time. I say, come for the OMM, stay for the comedy. Uh, so. <laughs> try and get my patients to laugh and to be silly on the table because so many of them, whatever the source of their pain is, <clears throat> there's always a mental health component to it. Yeah. Uh, and there's always this pretense of trying to keep it together. And so being able to laugh and, and, and release some of that uh, really, I think adds to healing. Absolutely. Maybe in some way you're kind of uh, treating the spirit of the person through laughter Absolutely. I 100% say mind, body, and spirit. Uh, and it's one of my pet peeves for our profession that we say we're mind, body, and spirit, mm -hmm. and everything is about manipulation. And I'm like, okay, um, hand raise. <laughs> <laughs> what about the mental health? What about the spirit? When are we going to get to that? Um, right. So um, I was a program chair for Convo a few years back in, I think, 2016. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> Um, Dolores's last name, that's horrible, uh, for the president. Uh, and um, my on mental health uh, in osteopathic care, um, because I don't think that we do enough of it. Yeah, no, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because it's, it's been a struggle of mine throughout residency trying to figure out, yeah, we, you're right, we talk about mind, body, and spirit, but it seems to me that I'm spending most of my time in the, the realm of the body. But what right. about, and how do I address, what's my role of how, how should I address the mind? How should I address the spirit? Mm -hmm. um, and, and oftentimes those chronic pain patients, they're coming in with their backwards sacral torsion again and again and again. Like, hmm, I think there's a lot more to this picture than just, the biomechanics that I'm finding in your body, but, Absolutely. you know, but again, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure my role because I'm not a, I'm a physician, but I'm not trained in psychiatry, psychology, um, you know, mental health per se, other than my medical school training. So, so what would you say to that? Well, I would say a few things. Um, one is, I think it's, I always go back to medical education and in medical education, we talk about having different competencies, right? And we say you're supposed to have medical knowledge, you're supposed to have interpersonal communication skills, professionalism, uh, be knowledgeable in systems-based practice, practice-based learning, uh, and patient care. And yet everything becomes about board scores. Everything becomes about multiple choice exams and, and, and medical knowledge and all the others kind of go by the wayside. And everything that matters can't be measured and everything that measures that's measured can't, doesn't matter. Um, I would say you have to make a concerted effort, especially if your training is lacking in it. 
you have to make a concerted effort to learn about the mental health piece, to learn about coaching. I've done a ton of reading on uh, leadership development and management to really help people get clarity about what their issues are. That doesn't mean that I solve those issues, but we can begin to tease out what is on the table in terms of their mental health and what kinds of questions they can be asking. And many times I'm referring them to get counseling, sometimes within our center, sometimes outside, uh, sometimes referring them to psychiatrists, um, and sometimes giving them books to read or, or talking about the types of questions they should be asking with whoever's uh, collaborating with them, which might be uh, a religious or spiritual uh, leader in their community. But I would say that I would tell everyone to do reading on personal development because you can't guide someone down a path you've never been down. So it really becomes incumbent upon you about what are you doing to become the best person in your life, independent of being a physician, and then understanding how hard a path that is to walk and understanding how to give some some guidance uh, to your patients along those same lines. But you can't guide somebody down a path you've never been down. But it's really about identifying how mental health and how spirituality play a role in our general health and well-being and how to give permission to patients to recognize that that needs to be part of their care plan, whether it's coming directly from you or coming from another source. So if one of the providers says, well, Dr. Chanel, I don't have mental health issues, um, would you, you know, how can I go down that path to relate to my patients that do have mental health issues? Are you, are you saying so, that you should read and educate yourself on? So, I mean, part of it is just understanding uh, human nature and the ways in which we function um, and, and keep things bottled up the ways in which we communicate, how we manage conflict, um, how we have accountability and the stories that we tell uh, to ourselves uh, about what's happening. Uh, we make up a lot of stories around the events of our lives and, and make assumptions and project things into situations that aren't true. Uh, I've heard it said, you know, uh, pain is an inevitability of life, but suffering is a choice. Um, and the suffering part really comes from our imaginations, our memories, trying to rehash things that aren't currently happening. Um, but I'll give you some examples. So specifically on the table, I, I am a family doc by training uh, as well as board certified in uh, ONMM. But now because of my role as curriculum dean, I, I haven't practiced family medicine uh, in about uh, eight years, seven and a half years. And so now I only see patients who are coming to the Neuromusculoskeletal Institute uh, for pain. And they're coming to see me as a specialist. And I can't tell you the countless times, easily a third of the time, we start having conversation about stress. You get on somebody's traps, you get on somebody's jaw or on their head, um, you're getting on somebody's stomach and in their, in their GI system, and you feel all this tension. It's incumbent upon you to ask them about what's going on in their lives. When I go to do cranial on somebody and I go to lift their head, all heads are heavy. But I can tell you from experience, when I pick up a head and it feels like somebody has poured concrete, universally, those people are going through above average levels of stress. You know, life is stressful. Living is stressful. But universally, you know, they are losing their house. They're 
partner is dying of cancer, their, you know, spouse is cheating on them with their best friend, like really, really, really horrendous things. And when that happens, if I'm on their head, I go, all heads are heavy. Your head feels really heavy. Anything going on? <laughs> that mm-hmm. usually indicates some high levels of stress. Anything going on? Uh, well, you know, everything's okay. Life is stressful. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, I know. But I put my hands on a lot of people's heads. This is different. Can you talk to me? Uh, because it's really having an effect on your body. And that's when the stories come out. <laughs> now, if they say, no, everything's fine. I go, okay. And usually before they'll leave, I'll say, I am not here to make you tell me anything that you don't want to tell me, but I am here to help you get better. Um, if you reflect and you can think of anything, let me know, because I did feel some things today that really speak to emotional distress. Um, and we can't get you fully better until we address that. Same thing when I'm on their traps and, and I go to do a trap release or go to do thoracic inlet release. And I go, man alive, this is really jammed up, really tight. Uh, what's going on? Who do we need to yell at? <laughs> you know, who do, we need, who do we need? Who do we need to get rid of? Because uh, if it's not your kid, they're not under eighteen. Everybody else can go. Um, like, what's going on? And um, you know, and they'll laugh about it or whatever. And and sometimes they'll tell me, and sometimes they won't. Depending on what else is going on in their bodies that I feel in terms of patterns, I'll go. This is really this pattern is really speaking to me about emotional stress or distress what's happening. Um, or sometimes you just get, for me, I get like things that come to mind. I'll put my hands on somebody and I'll just get the word loss and I go, everything going okay. And you know, sometimes somebody's just passed or they're going through a change or transition or moving or job changes or other things. It just gives them permission, uh, to talk about it. And, you know, people are shy or I won't say shy, more embarrassed. Don't want to talk about it. Don't want to be complainers. Um, young mom stressed out about raising three kids under the age of 10 and they go, I love my kids. And I go, of course you love your kids. That's why you're stressed. You know, who's not stressed people who don't love their kids. They're doing great. I said, those two things are not, (laughs) you know, mutually exclusive. You are stressed because you care. Now let's talk about what we can do to decrease your stress and how we can manage this because this is not sustainable or in your best interest. Right. And so giving people permission to admit that life is hard without making it seem like they're whining or without making it seem like all is lost because they're stressed or, or in distress um, and giving them some ways to start to work through that. So so how did you get to the point where you could put your hands on a person's body and realize, OK, there's more to the story here than just what I'm feeling in the tissue. There is some emotional component. Is that just with experience of having treated hundreds, maybe thousands of patients? Um, The head thing, as far as the weight of the head and feeling that, that probably came after several years of being an attending. The other stuff, I guess, also came that part, I think anyone can feel, um, which is, you know, now that I've said the head thing, anybody who practices manipulation uh, and is on people's heads a lot, if you start paying attention, you'll feel it, you'll see it. Um, you have to have the reps. Um, as far as the pattern to the body, I think people carry their stress in their jaw, in their traps and shoulders, and in their gut. Those are the places that they routinely carry stress. When you find 
those three things always happening, you should at least ask the question. At least ask the question. Especially the more debilitating it is, the more I'm going to press about that. You know, somebody who is trying to run their marathon and, you know, they have a little bit of this or that, and they're just trying to be the, their better selves for their athletics and and really are otherwise able to live their lives, I'm less pressed about. People who have an interruption of their activities of daily life and it's disrupting their relationships or disrupting their job or just disrupting their home life, we're probably going to have a bigger conversation. And I think that I kind of have a little bit of a no-nonsense kind of attitude, which doesn't make me seem too touchy-feely, <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> and I think that makes people, when someone serious says, no, this is a problem and it's legitimate, I think that legitimizes people's pain, their emotional pain, their mental pain, and gives them permission to talk. See, are you saying that you're pretty direct with them? I'm super direct. I'm sorry. We haven't met before. Yeah, ask around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm super direct. Uh, yeah. Okay. Very direct saying, I think there's more to this. There seems to be some possibly emotional or stress-related component to what I'm feeling in your body. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, I don't say, do you want to talk about it? I go, you're going to talk about it or you're going to put my kid through college. It's up to you. Um, <laughs> you, you gotta, you know, we can talk about it and get you better or we can not talk about it and I can pay my bills. It's up to you. Um, that's mm, I like that. <laughs> that's, you know, how I talk. And I think that that for some patients, most patients is pretty disarming, which is, you know, I can't, I can't make you share, but I can tell you that it's impacting yeah. your health and impacting your ability to heal and get better for the long term. Mm -hmm. And and for the most part, would you say patients respond pretty well to that? No, I think they respond great to it. Um, I think I think patients are looking for a space for people to stop and ask questions. It's disturbing to me uh, the number of uh, patients who say, you're the only doctor that actually touched me. I've seen three doctors for this problem. You're the only doctor that actually put their hands on me. What do you, what's happening out here in these streets? What do you mean you went to a doctor for neck pain and no one touched your neck? Like, I don't care if you're trained in OMM. What do you mean you have neck pain and no one touched your neck? What do you mean you have back pain and no one touched your back? I can only imagine the cursory questions that are being asked um, in the offices if they're not even doing a basic proper physical exam. So yeah, I think patients are, when, when you just stop and go, hey, we're just gonna have a conversation, okay? And I, as, as direct as I am, I go, you know, it's none of my business asking for a friend. You know, it's kind of my job. I get in trouble if I don't ask these questions. However, <laughs> here's what I feel on you. Here's what I see in patients like you. You tell me if I'm on the right track. If you tell me I'm not, then I move on. Um, and again, it depends on, on, on how they come in. Because sometimes what they're saying just 1,000% doesn't match up. So I'll tell you one that's not around mental health. A patient came in, came in with temporal headaches. I put my, as part of my physical exam, I put my hand.
PMJ and had them open and close their jaw. Now in their history, I, I specifically ask with headaches and with anything else, any inciting events, any car accidents, any trauma, any baseballs to the head, like falls, all these prompting questions around history. And this woman was like, no, 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 no. Five-year history of headaches, blah, 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 blah. I put my hand on her jaw. She opens and closes her jaw and it feels like somebody crumpling up heavy aluminum foil. And I go, ma'am, there is no way that you haven't had trauma. You're telling me you never had a car accident? Oh yeah, I did. Um, okay. When was it? Five years ago. Uh, yeah. Okay. Did you hit your head? Well, yeah, I dislocated my jaw, but they put it back. That's not what the problem is. Uh, yeah, actually it is. So when what you feel doesn't match what they say, that is also when I'm going to prompt. It's not like I'm drilling down and putting a bright light on all my patients going, tell me about your problems. It's really about <laughs> matching up what you feel with what they say and, and making space for them to tell you more. Yeah. How, how did you become so good at this? I feel like this is the, the art of medicine piece. I hope I'm good at it. Um, I think for me, what drew me to osteopathy was the philosophy. I had already written off. I was in college. I had looked at being pre-med. I started doing shadowing and I was like, absolutely not. This is absolutely not what I want to do. Um, I don't like what I'm seeing in terms of how patients are talked to or how they're treated. And then I found out about osteopathic medicine and it was like, oh, beacon of light. Like I was 100% all in on the philosophy, only went to medical school, only applied osteopathic, only wanted to be an osteopathic doc. Didn't think anything else was worth my time. As part of that, my personal development, trying to be accountable to myself for myself, trying to master myself and master my emotions and understand my predispositions and my personality type and take ownership of that and all of those things so that I could better serve my patients. The end. That's the whole gist. <laughs> That was a that was a great summary. How how did you find out about osteopathic medicine? Oh, it's silly. Um, a friend <laughs> of mine was in chiropractic school, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I was getting my master's in science education. I was going to teach high school, which I did for a couple of years before I went to med school. And I said I want to get my master's, and I'm going to teach for a while until I really figure out what I want to do. But I don't really know what I want to do. And I'd already written off med school and I'd already written off being a PhD and I just didn't know what to do. And my friend from college was trying to convince me to go to chiropractic school, which they were enrolled in chiropractic school. And she said, this is how it's different from allopathic medicine or MDs. And this is how it's different from osteopathic medicine or DOs. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's that osteopathic one? Tell me more about that. That is how I found out about osteopathic medicine hmm. from a chiropractor. Okay. So your friend who's a chiropractor just knew about the profession or maybe had some friends or read about it. And well, I'm sure she learned, she learned about it, you know, in chiropractic school. Chiropractic school. I see. Okay. So that's how you found out about it. Now, what, what was it about the philosophy of osteopathy that really caught your attention and intrigued you? I think for me, you know, at some point in college, 
as I said, I, I have struggled with anxiety and depression probably most of my life. And I just got tired of feeling like a victim in my own life. And so I really took it upon myself to go in search, go in search of religion, go in search of health, go in search of like how to be the best version of myself. Uh, because death is going to come to us all. You don't have to chase that. But while we're here, <laughs> since I've got to be here, how can we make the best out of it? You know, what can we do? What meaning can we find? What joy can we find? How can we have it serve us the best while we're, while we're here? And so I was vegan and I was exercising and I was praying and I was searching for religion and I was searching for all of these things uh, to be the best version of myself. But along the same lines, I was looking for a way to be of service in the world that I felt was meaningful and really produced results. Like I wasn't interested in, you know, pushing papers and I wasn't interested in things that I thought weren't actually creating positive results in people's lives, which is why I had written off the medical profession in the first place is because I'm like, I'm sure you're doing something. You're saving sort of the sickest people from the brink of death. But in terms of ongoing daily health, it doesn't seem like that's what you guys are doing. And the philosophy said, no, we want to do all of these things simultaneously. And what drew me to osteopathic medicine versus chiropractic was I said, yes, you can prevent a lot of disease, cure a lot of disease with your diet, with your sleep habits, with your lifestyle changes. But if I get shot, can you please take me to the OR? <laughs> if I am having a heart attack, can you please take me to the cath lab? Um, I don't want you to adjust my neck. I want you to take me to the cath lab. And so osteopathic medicine to me was the broadest. I don't think it's you know complete medicine, but I think it's the broadest medicine that we have available in the West in terms of focusing on preventative care and yet recognizing all the spectrum of disease and giving you the full breadth of medical technology, particularly in acute and severe situations. I see. I see. So, so you chose to go to osteopathic school. You only applied to osteopathic schools. You got in and you're starting to experience what osteopathic medical school is like. What was it like going to that first OMT lab and lecture? Did that resonate with you? Was that something that really drew your attention from the get-go? No, and I hope this gives hope to anybody who's listening who's not the local OMT guru in their school. I was not the local OMT guru in my school. I would be surprised if most people in my school even knew that I was interested in traditional osteopathy. Because when I got to medical school, I found most people around me really weren't interested in it, particularly in osteopathic philosophy, which was jarring. Uh, I was disabused of, of the idea that we were all there singing Kumbaya on the same page. <laughs> and I found the lecture in the lab sort of disconnected from how to apply it in the real world, like how does this come into play? I really, now as an educator, I try to teach my students, I am teaching you the alphabet. <laughs> like we're gonna walk through some cases, we're gonna talk about some things and hopefully give you some context, but I am teaching you the alphabet. By the time you are done with first and second year, you will know the alphabet and some short sentences. <laughs> 
And then you'll move on to clerkships and hopefully we'll start getting you to write in some short paragraphs. And then when you're in a residency, if you so choose, you know, you might start getting into some real prose and some complicated things. And certainly if you specialize, you certainly will. But I really didn't see the connection when I was a first and second year medical student. And I really said, oh, I'm going to have to figure this out on my own. Like, I'm going to have to go find outside teachers, outside experiences, outside something to really help me uh, with this. And really by, I don't know if it was the end of my second year or certainly by the end of my third year, I had started taking electives in OMM, started taking courses, uh, started, you know, really getting mentors uh, to help me understand things better and to find my joy in it because I wasn't really getting it in the, in the introductory curriculum. And, and it wasn't certainly part of the standard mandatory curriculum. So I think I had the foundations coming out of first and second year, but I definitely had to sort of carve my own path, uh, when I got it to clerkships. Yeah. I think that that's a challenge at a lot of the medical schools to connect the dots between the techniques that you're they're using and what kind of real life clinical pathology can these techniques be used to treat. Right. Doc, Dr. Lippert, Dr. Jamie Lippert, who I'm sure you know, has I do. done a, a great job uh, here at MSU at the end of the semesters, bringing in case studies. Actually, today with the first year students, we went over some case. We, we presented a case of GERD and a case of post-op ileus. And you know, we had roundtable discussions about what would be some of the techniques that we could use that we've learned to treat these. And mm -hmm. then we worked on each other. And I mm -hmm. thought it was a really good way of connecting the dots and, and trying to, to connect the techniques that they're learning and real clinical scenarios. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's so important in the curriculum. So there's yeah. not to connect. Yeah, Dr. Lippert's great. No, I think, um, I think there's a newer generation of, of educators who recognize that we are in a different environment. You know, if you go back two generations, we had osteopathic hospitals, everybody did OMM, like you were going to get it just by osmosis without any real effort. Um, now you're hard pressed to find DOs who do OMM at all past their second year. And it's a real challenge for our students and trainees to really have the role models as to who they're going to be as physicians. Cause students and trainees do what they see their attendings do period. And I'm not just talking about OMM. I'm talking about how you talk to patients. I'm talking about how you document in your chart. I'm talking about what type of physical exam you do. Students and trainees do what their attendings do across the board, including not doing structural exams and not doing all that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that, that role modeling becomes critical. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I was reading some statistic that there's something less than 5% of Osteopathic physicians are using OMT in the clinical setting. I don't know if that's, I don't remember where that came from. I haven't, I haven't seen any recent numbers. I, the last set of national numbers I saw was back when I was in training. So that was 20 years ago. I'd have to look to see if there's any more updated numbers. I think after those numbers, people stopped looking because they didn't want to know. <laughs> um, and they didn't want to know the answer to the question. So I think they stopped asking uh, the question. So 
I would argue, I really wish more osteopathic physicians incorporated osteopathic manipulative medicine into their practice. I would argue, and I, I do argue that having OMM as part of your training changes you long-term, especially in the age of Generation Z who grew up with iPhones. And I actually don't know how old you are, Dr. Green, or what generation you belong to, but for 39. my generation... Hmm? I'm 39. Okay. Um, and so, what does that make you, a millennial? Yes. So when you think about having to knock on your friends' doors, you know, can so-and-so come out and play or hello, Mrs. Johnson, or calling them at home pre-cell phones. When you think about all the touch points of socializations that you got on a daily basis from a very young age, that all of that is gone. That Generation Z has whole relationships they break up, they make up, they ask each other out by text and emojis. They don't have to do anything face-to-face. -face. They don't have to have that uncomfortableness of talking to someone. They literally have a term called ghosting. They ghost each other and just pretend like another human being doesn't exist. They never have to knock on the door or call their friend's house and have that uncomfortable awkwardness of talking to parents. All of these things are things that build up your tolerance and your resilience to uncomfortable situations and raise it up. If you've never even done the baby steps of the things I just described, how are you going to be in a patient room talking about STIs or cancer risk or, you know, some other severe diagnosis to a patient or to their family? How are you going to have that uncomfortable resolution with the nurse on the floor in terms of conflict management or with your peer resident or attending if you can't even get back past what previous generations just took for granted as a requirement to live life? It's hmm. a really interesting point. So, so I think that OMM forces you when you have to, once you rock a sacrum, right? How much, <laughs> how much social pretense can you have? Once you've had to gap the pubic bones or, you know, get on somebody's celiac ganglion in lab and every week you're being the patient and every week someone's treating you, every week you're being vulnerable to someone and every week you have to touch someone else and be awkward for two years straight. I argue that that helps our students to retain their empathy because there's plenty of data to show that medical school sucks the empathy out of medical students. And part of that, I believe, is because they don't touch patients for a year and a half to two years after they get there. OMM forces our students to get past that. Anytime that you have to have someone working on your neck, right? It could be cervical counterstrain, it could be muscle energy, it could be anything. But anytime you have that awkwardness as the patient, you're like, am I gonna be okay? Well, that's how your patients sometimes feel. Right. Anytime when you're treating somebody and you're like, I don't know if I'm doing this right, you know, to be able to feel that in the in a pretty low stakes environment and then be able to walk in and be like, well, here we go. Like whether students realize it or all of that jitteriness, all of that fear, all of that discomfort is building up their resilience for the uncomfortable nature of walking into a stranger's room and needing to instantly connect. That's what we do as physicians, hopefully. Yeah. We walk in, we meet people, and we have to find a way 
to immediately connect with them, put them at ease and get them to tell us all their business and all their secrets. Mm -hmm. That's no easy task. That's no easy task. But part of that is, do you seem at ease with yourself? Do you seem like you're terrified to touch me? If you're terrified to touch me, I'm terrified to have you touch me. Like, (laughs) what's your comfort level with getting in there and putting your hands on people? And I've had program directors over the years who have had DOs and MDs say in a positive way, I can spot the DOs across the room. I can spot my DO residents across the room. Their level of comfort with patients is just their willingness to just jump in is so different than their allopathic counterparts. And I attribute that to the OMM training. You're, you are being vulnerable and you are having patients, your, your classmates be vulnerable to you from the beginning. Yeah. So, so why do you think then there, there aren't many osteopathic physicians who are using this tool where do you think the disconnect is there? If if it if it is actually the OMT that's potentially making them more empathetic, putting them in awkward situations, and them having to overcome themselves, how come more of them are not using this when they become residents or when they become attendings? To understand the answer to that question, or at least my opinion of the answer to that question, I would say everyone has to read the DOs uh, in America and to understand our history in this country, including, you know, sort of fighting our way as a field through all the other fields of medicine that came up in the same time period, and then trying to compete with our allopathic counterparts and prove that we're just as good. Allopathic medicine largely came up in urban areas and academic centers, and we largely came up in more rural areas and community health centers. Uh, And the competition has been fierce over the decades and going on centuries. I think that when you look at our desire to prove that we are as good, we have tried to hide the differences in many ways. That compounded with how fee-for-service and insurance has changed and made it a barrier to perform OMM because of the time that it consumes and the lack of reimbursement for it. You put those two things together and it's a recipe for making people not do what is part of their training. Hmm. Interesting. So why do we not, I guess I'm just wondering, why, why do we not have this problem at Michigan State? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bubble. I know the uh, place is a bubble. But yeah, uh, I have I have I visited Michigan State years ago, uh, and I certainly know Dr. DeStefano and Dr. Lippert. So you have tremendous long-term leadership. I know that mm-hmm. Dr. Lippert is transitioning into that role, but Dr. DeStefano has been there for some substantial amount of time. I don't want to say since time immemorial, but for some substantial (laughs) amount of time, which really I think sets the cultural tone and gives the ability to build some long-term infrastructure. And you have have had a commitment from presumably your leadership at large, uh, your deans and, and the support of the community. Once that infrastructure is built, not that it can't be destroyed, but it's pretty hard <laughs> uh, to, to have that. And I think that, that that goes a long way. So you've been very lucky to have some long-term committed leadership that understand what's needed 
to create the culture that you want to have in your community. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we do have excellent leadership in Dr. Lippert, Dr. DiStefano previously and continues to be a great pillar in our in our clinic and just outstanding physicians there at the clinic. And you have the osteopathic medical school that's been around since 1969 and producing hundreds and hundreds of osteopathic physicians that I don't know what's in the water here in Michigan, but they all seem to stay around this area. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So they have an understanding of what OMM is because they also see it in the traditional, traditionally osteopathic hospitals like McLaren Hospital here in Lansing, which mm-hmm. was founded by osteopathic physicians and have has always had OMT as a service in the hospital. So mm-hmm. there is kind of this incredible culture and infrastructure that mm-hmm. even in the community, you walk down the street and people like know what OM, OMM is. Yeah, you that's know, a beautiful just, thing. It's, it's just incredible. And it's, it, you're right. It's, it's a lot of hard work, blood, sweat, and tears over many, many decades. But um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty special place. Um, I wish it was more common in the United States, but. Um, no, absolutely. I think you have to really work hard uh, at that to, to try and create that and to create that infrastructure. Um, and it does take decades, I think, uh, to do in a sustainable way. So. Yeah. And so, Dr. Chanel, then you, towards the end of medical school, decided to go FM. Was that because you you wanted to just have that broad spectrum knowledge of medicine? So when I went into medical school, I thought I was going to be an OB-GYN. And then it turns out I hate surgery and I'm blind as a bat and I can't stay scrubbed in for more than two hours. And so all of those things combined <laughs> really spoke to me not doing surgery of any kind. Um, but I said, well, I can still do women's health if I do family medicine. I wonder sometimes if I had not known about PMNR, I wonder sometimes if I had known about PMNR, if I wouldn't have gone into PMNR. But I really, at that time, planned to come out and be a community doc. And I thought being a family doc was the best way uh, to do that. The only reason I did a fellowship in OMM was because I didn't get the intensity of training in OMM that I thought I would get in medical school and residency but it wasn't to be a specialist. I got it. And so why the transition then from, you said you haven't practiced FM in about eight years. Why mm-hmm. the transition to, to practicing as an OMM specialist? Uh, truly, it was because of my administrative role. So I became a curriculum dean to help create the medical school I always wanted to go to. And so we implemented the Tensegrity curriculum at Rowan Virtua in 2019 that really focuses on what I hope is more of a mind, body, and spirit. It's, you know, the quintessential, but it's certainly a a significant improvement over where we were in terms of a more traditional osteopathic curriculum. Still not where I want it to be, but moving every day towards that goal. In order to do that, uh, I still want it to continue to teach. And I do teach in one of our OMM labs in first year. And I, really only practice a half a day a week. And so I opted, it's much easier to maintain your skills in OMM a half a day a week than it is in family. So uh, that was my option. And then that's how I got here. Got it. Can you talk a little bit about, did you call it the Tensegrity curriculum? You heard it right. Okay. (laughs) Can you give us some broad strokes of 
how this curriculum is unique? Sure. So for all of your listeners, I hope everyone on this who's listening knows what tensegrity is, uh, but it's the combination of the words tension and integrity. It was an architectural term that has uh, since acted by numerous disciplines, including the osteopathic community, to talk about the balance of tensions in our bodies that allow us to be mobile human beings, right? Because you can't stack a skeleton and have it be upright. It's actually the balance of tensions of our muscles, fascia, ligaments, tendons, that allows us to be upright and to ambulate. And so when we were developing our curriculum, I'm really proud to say that we had a curriculum renewal committee and it was actually our second year medical students on the curriculum renewal committee who, when we were batting around names and we said tensegrity curriculum, they said, absolutely, that's what this is because we were increasing community service learning and leadership, which focused on leadership development, personal development, community outreach, uh, conflict management. It focused on increasing simulation and technology and point of care ultrasound. It, It expanded our training and medical scholarship and trying to get our students ready to be, you know, physician researchers and scientists and really understand literature that that was the direction that we were going in and saying again, Knowing all the answers on a test does not make a great doctor. Everybody, I ask my students regularly, raise your hand if you've ever had a bad experience with a doctor. And universally, two-thirds of the class raises their hands. These are 22-year-olds. And two-thirds of the people in the room are raising their hands about they had a bad experience with a doctor. And I said, I'll bet a nickel it wasn't because they didn't know how to diagnose. It was probably because they didn't know how to communicate. They didn't know how to collaborate. They didn't know how to evoke trust in you. They didn't know how to advocate for you. It was something other than the strict medical knowledge. So to be a great doctor, it is a kill item to not have those other skills. And to pretend that those are optional is like saying, you know, having brakes on a car is optional or having windshield wipers or doors that lock on a car is optional. I mean, you could do it if you want to. Uh, but it's not something I want to get into. So that's why we refer to it as the tensegrity curriculum. It's because we want whole doctors to treat whole patients. So how do you create that balance then between those interpersonal skills and the scientific-based knowledge? I think we charge, I campaign a lot uh, with our faculty and our faculty campaigns a lot to constantly reiterate that all of those things are important. So we have longitudinal curricular components around communication and leadership development around medical scholarship and constantly explaining to our students that all these parts are necessary. They're not all gonna be researchers. I don't have any uh, illusions that most of my students are gonna come out and be researchers. I don't have any illusions that most of my students are gonna come out and be osteopathic specialists. But you have to have a foundational knowledge in these things to understand how to incorporate the fundamentals of it into the care of your patients and when to refer. Mm -hmm. So how would you summarize the ideal graduate of the medical school, the tensegrity, tensegrity curriculum once they graduate from medical school? Uh, The ideal graduate, the ideal graduate has a strong sense of self, has a sense of personal responsibility a sense of empathy and forgiveness for themselves and others, has strong medical knowledge and clinical skills, 
and knows when to ask for help and how to give help. And these are, I'm sorry, go ahead. I said the end. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, and these were aspects in your medical school training that you felt were lacking some of these areas? Because you said I, you, you wanted to put together a medical school curriculum that you wanted to be a part of if you were a medical student. I guess I'm inferring a little bit. Yeah, I think that, you know, the focus of schools has been, you know, the rest of the medical community is coming around to the biopsychosocial model. But I think it's change is hard. And I think despite what we collectively profess, both allopathic and osteopathic, that you have to stand by what you say, which is that if communication skills and professionalism is important, that if a graduate can't do those things, that maybe they can't graduate no matter what their board scores are. Wow. That's a lot to ask. It takes a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of investment of human resources to make a doctor to say that because somebody can't meet something on a test that's really uh, objective or is considered objective that that their career might need to come to an end it's it's hard to get people to say say that and so it takes a lot to be able to say confidently yeah we've we've done what we can and we've invested and 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 we don't feel like we can put this person out in the community with confidence. Because here's the reality about medical school, especially state schools like Rowan Virtua and Michigan. Most of our grads are from our area. And what I tell my educators are, graduate them if you want to, but they could be standing over your loved one in the ER or in the hospital. And no one wants to look up and say, oh no, not you. When it's your kid or your spouse. Yeah. Yeah, that's a strong message. Um, so so is the interview process just very rigorous? Because I feel like there's some personalities that maybe the the extremely introverted person are a person of very, very few words. You know, communication for them might be really, really challenging just because of their temperament. Are those students that may get put on the wait list or not the ideal student you're looking for? Or No, I, I think that, first of all, I'm an introvert, believe it or not. Um, I don't think being an introvert means that you can't talk to people. Being an introvert means that after you talk to people, you're tired. <laughs> so, <laughs> true. You know, so I don't think that... Um, and certainly we try to be very accessible in the way that reflective people time to reflect so that they can communicate their ideas. I, I hope that what we do, listen, it takes all type of people to make the world go round. Mm -hmm. We have all types of patients and we need to have all types of doctors. There's not one communication style that works. And the reality is all of us have to use different communication styles in our daily lives to the best of our abilities as, as is needed. But I think that lots of quiet and introverted people are drawn to medicine because most of medicine is one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. 
And I think they can really thrive uh, in those environments. The joy of introverts is that, you know, we're very intent, particularly on small groups of people or one-on-one. That's a, a recipe for, for greatness uh, in the right hands. But whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, that's really not the question. The question is, are you self-aware? Mm-hmm. Do you know what your strengths are? Can you work within your strengths? Do you know what your weaknesses are? Can you mitigate those as much as possible to yeah. serve your people? Yeah, I like that. I was reading this uh, this book that was talking about how communication, like 80% of communication is actually nonverbal. It's crazy. Which was astounding to me. But I think yeah. there's a lot of truth to that. Absolutely. That's why self-awareness, I keep saying it, it's like a mantra, it's like, uh, you know, over and over again, self-awareness is a major piece, I think, of being a good doctor. Mm-hmm. So so what are some, some things that you do in the curriculum then to try to help foster that self-awareness? So we don't do it to the extent that I want to, but here are the fundamentals that we do starting in first year. We expose students to the concept of emotional intelligence, and we have several sessions on emotional intelligence which focuses on self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and social management. Any leadership, I can't tell you the number of leadership programs I've been in over the course of my lifetime. Any leadership program you go to is going to have a session on emotional intelligence. And people pay, you know, tons of money to get coaches and do programs to teach them these fundamentals. And we give it to our students as a standard in their first year of medical school. We move them through the concept of implicit bias to help them understand the concept of implicit bias. And we have them take several of the Harvard implicit bias tests. And then we have several small group sessions to talk about that and to talk about the applications of it. We have sessions on conflict management and having people understand their own conflict styles. And I hope you hear the theme over and over again of just awareness. We're not telling you who to be. We're saying, do you know who you are? (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. And so you can be a pickup truck, you can be a Miata, you can be an RV, you can be any of those things. But if you are (laughs) a two-seater, it's not going to work to try and be a school bus. Uh, And if you're an RV, you shouldn't be trying to park in the compact spot in the parking lot. (laughs) So it's really understanding what are your strengths, (laughs) you know, where could you excel and best serve, um, and then understanding what your limitations are. That's not good or bad. Good or bad really depends on the circumstances that you are then subsequently put in. Because if you judge a fish by how well it climbs a tree, that fish will always fail. So mm-hmm. you really have to know yourself so that you can explore where you would best serve. Yeah, I really like that. I like that a lot. And it, it forces it forces us in a world and society that is moving at a thousand miles an hour with I mean, being on our phones, being on, in, on social media, being on the internet, it's so important sometimes to just like disconnect and do that introspective exercise. Um, I was actually studying to become a Catholic priest before I went to uh, decide to go to medical school. Wow. And part of what we did each day was a 10-minute examination of conscience at midday before lunch, and then before you went to bed. Mm. And yeah, I thought that was such a powerful practice where you kind of reflected on what were some things that I did well during the day? 
where did I fall short in specific circumstances during the day and taking note of that and trying to make amends for it in, mm-hmm. in some way. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a very powerful practice. So um, yeah, I think that's a, uh, could be extremely powerful for the students and um, very much help them as a physician. Well, I mean, just in life, actually, in general. Well, that's just it. That's just talking about just in life to be the best version of yourself. And really in a time when we keep talking about wellness, what could contribute better to wellness than, than having some sense of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Such a, such a great point. Um, Dr. Chanel, before I, before we part ways, cause I, I, I want to be respectful of your time as well, mm-hmm. but I did want to ask you, you know, as president of the, of the AOA this year, what are some of the, your goals or things that you're hoping to achieve? Yeah, uh, a few things. So one of the things I said in my uh, inaugural speech was that our profession is rapidly growing. We, when I applied to medical school and I am not that old, though I did just submit to turning 50 this week. (laughs) um, When I applied to medical school in the late nineties, there were 17 medical schools period. Now uh, we have, I think, the last count, and every week it changes. Last count, there were 39 medical schools and 62 locations in 35 states. That is a huge increase in the number of osteopathic medical students and and future physicians that are coming through. We are now roughly 26% of all U.S. medical students. That being said, if we talk about who's graduating, and when I say who, like, how do they view the world? How do they view themselves as osteopathic physicians? What is their part of their professional identity? The things that come to mind to me is who's training them in OMM? So do we have people like yourself who are board certified? And we certainly have several people in our labs not board certified and, and, and several people who really took up that mantle when they came to our school to train uh, or when they or to teach and, and got trained more in OMM as faculty member rather than as part of their training. But I think it's important to have a critical mass of people who understand it as a specialty in an in-depth way in order to guide the curriculum so that students who want to pursue this or want to have a fun foundational knowledge have that foundational knowledge and you need OMM specialists to do that. And right now we are only filling our uh, categorical residencies by about 43%. So you are a rare breed, Dr. Green. And I hope to try and encourage more people to see straight OMF as a viable career option. So I want more of our schools, when we talk to the third years who are rising, fourth years who are trying to pick their specialties, is anyone saying OMM to them? Because I think that we really focus when and if we say it, we say it as a fellowship. We say it as something to do after you do your 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 base residency. And I want more people to explore it as a foundational residency. Um, and so whether they do ONMM by itself or go on to sports medicine or go on to women's health or go on to other things, that they look at OMM and fill our residency so that we have people in practice to send our trainees to and to send our patients to, and that we have people 
who are there to teach at our medical schools and in our residencies. So filling those residencies is, is a big thing that I would like to see happen. Increasing the number of people who go into academic medicine, if you didn't hear me already imply that, and increasing the diversity of who we have in our residencies to start to reach out uh, to more diverse uh, groups. Because if you go to the AAO or go into uh, some of our conferences or, or courses, it's, it's uh, fairly homogenous. And we really want to diversify mm -hmm. that because that would be more reflective of our country. If we want osteopathic care to as many people as possible and to all Americans, then we have to have people from all communities represented in our profession and represented in our specialty. And so reaching out to more diverse communities is really something I uh, am trying to do as part of my presidency, increasing the number of people who are going into OMM as specialties, increasing uh, the number of private practice docs that let our trainees come out and train with them, and increasing the number of students who go into academic medicine. Uh, those are my goals. I know it's a, a lot, but no, great. That's exactly what I was uh, hoping for as a response. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All of those things are on your wish list. I'm glad that worked out. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. You checked one one by one. Um, <laughs> Related to just making ONMM more known as a specialty, so I'm hoping to work with different SAO groups um, throughout the country and do a Zoom. Well, many of our residents, hopefully, will uh, be doing Zooms, and we've already done it for a few, just presenting what is it like in an ONMM residency, you know, lifestyle um, rotations that we have, um, specialty options or fellowship options, you know, because I think, I think you're right. I, I think I even heard here at Michigan State that some of the comm students didn't even know that ONMM was a specialty and we teach them in lab. Right. So I think we have to do a better job as a profession, and I include myself in this number, shame on me, uh, to be more explicit um, and to really explore, you know, I think some students think that if they go into ONMM, the only option that they have is to teach at a medical school. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, even if that was true, every time I turn around, there's a new medical school. So that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. Uh, <laughs> so the number of places you can live nowadays uh, teaching OMM is, is pretty broad. Um, but there's people like yourself going into sports medicine. There's people... Uh, who are, are going out and working in orthopedic offices uh, or PM&R offices. Because again, if you think about ortho, all the things that get sent their way because people don't know what to do with musculoskeletal care, they send it to ortho. But the reality is if ortho can't cut it off, replace it or inject it, they're not interested. And so what are you going to do with all these non-surgical musculoskeletal complaints? Well, a lot of them are having OMM and PM&R docs in their offices to handle the non-surgical musculoskeletal care. And so I think that we really need to talk to our students about these are viable options and you can go into practice and go into these specialty practices or go into private practice and have a boutique practice treating patients just by yourself with OMM or going into a multidisciplinary uh uh, practice with orthopods or PM&R doctors uh, or sports medicine doctors or going into fellowships like sports medicine uh, or, or other fellowships that you're
interested in or going into academia. All of these are viable options. And I think we need to be really, really much more explicit about these options and training the trainers, training our advisors at the medical school level to understand that these are options that they can explore with their, with their students. Yeah, I love that. Before we end, Dr. Chanel, any plugs that you would like to make? Any conferences coming up that you want to talk about? Or Well, you know, <laughs> we do have uh, the AAO convocation coming up in 2024. Uh, I'm very excited uh, to have a Dr. Saj survey, who is the dean of OPP at TCOM, be our uh, program chair. Uh, he is a PMNR and OMM uh, doc and just a brilliant person. I have, have had the pleasure of working with him uh, when he taught at New York. And his theme is maximizing human performance. And so he'll bring in specialty populations, talking about athletics, performing arts, military personnel, and just daily living. And I think it's going to be extremely exciting. We have a really diverse group of physicians coming in to talk about all of those fields. And I really hope it's going to be at the Broadmoor. We're going to have a spectacular time. Doctor's survey is brilliant. Uh, I've seen the program of people he's bringing on to so many brilliant uh, educators uh, and people who are out in practice to bring in performing arts, military care, um, and sports medicine and uh, to treat athletes. So I think everyone should come out to the Broadmoor uh, next March uh, in the in Colorado. Yeah. So those are the big ones. And of course, I always want to plug the five minute OMM consult uh, uh, for yeah. anyone. Uh, to me, it's it's that 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 friend in your pocket to help you know how to incorporate OMM into common diagnoses into the care of your patients. And so by all means, check your school library or get on Amazon today uh, and, and grab a copy. But those are the two plugs I'd like to make, Dr. Green. So thank That's you. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Survey, he's been a guest on the podcast twice. He is an incredible human being. He's actually coming to Michigan State in September to teach us a course on performing arts OMT. So yeah. He's, he's amazing. Everyone should come out. If you don't trust me on anything else, trust me on this. Anything survey does is amazing. So please come out to the Broadmoor in oh, March. Absolutely. Dr. Chanel, thank you so much. It was, a, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for sharing your ideas. Thank you for the incredible work that you're doing for the medical school, Rowan Virtua, as well as the osteopathic profession as a whole. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Green. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, you have a wonderful evening. You too. Okay, thank you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and learned more about the importance of self-awareness, mental health, and OMM as a specialty and a teacher of empathy. If you would like to reach out to Dr. Chanel, you may at kingmi at rowan.edu. As always, leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me at onmmpodcast at gmail.com. You can find these emails in the show notes and stay tuned for the next episode.